Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We are Luke chapter 19. We are moving with Jesus up to Jerusalem to the cross. Two weeks ago, we talked about handling disappointment and how Jesus looked at Jerusalem and wept over her. Last week, we talked about how to remember which city you were going to. <laughs> that was a little respite there. And this week, we're looking at experiencing rebuke. For here's one of the novel things that Jesus went through at the beginning of this week of intense stress and intense pressure and intense opposition. When I look at what Jesus went through with the cross in those last uh, days, two days of his life, and I put that in context, understanding what he experienced the entire last week of his life, that was a week that would have crushed the strongest among us. It would have ruined the the most courageous of us because of what Jesus went through. For if you begin in chapter 19 of Luke in verse 28, you'll see that when, he had, when Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now, from anywhere in Palestine, almost anywhere, you go up to Jerusalem. We go down to the beach, but we go up to Boone. We don't go up to the beach and down to Boone unless you're at Beach Mountain. But from almost anywhere in Palestine, you're going up to Jerusalem. He is headed now towards the city that shall be the city of his death, meaning he is ready to die. He passes through Bethany, uh, Bethphage and Bethany. They find the colt. Verse uh, 33, the owner said, why are you loosing the colt? The Lord has need of him. Verse 35, they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments on the colt and set Jesus on him. And as he went, they spread their clothes on the road. And as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Not only those who were following him through Bethphage and Bethany, but the rest of the pilgrims who had come in and around the city, they saw something happening and they began to follow Jesus up to Jerusalem. As he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd and they rebuked Jesus by saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Don't dare let them call you the Messiah by giving a messianic praise to you from Psalm 118. And Jesus answered them and said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And as he drew near, 
He saw the city, and I think for the second time at least mentioned in scriptures, he wept over the city, saying, O Jerusalem, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, the things that would bring peace to you, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment, and Rome did, around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not recognize your opportunity for redemption and salvation. Jesus now begins this week, and as he makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, coming down the slope of the Mount of Olives, and then back up through the garden, the, the extension of the Valley of Hinnom, and up the garden to the east gate, which has been closed and will be reopened when Jesus comes again. As he does that, they cry out, the multitude, the pilgrims, those following him from Bethany, lay down palm fronds and branches and they cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees immediately rebuke Jesus and tell him, don't you dare let these people call you the Messiah. Rebuke them. And Jesus' answer is a classic answer, isn't it? I tell you the truth. If these people don't tell the truth, the rocks will cry out. The truth will come out. The truth will be known. Now, I think it is fascinating for us to learn how to handle rebuke by studying how Jesus did. What did Jesus do when he was rebuked? There is intense suffering, but that's the way the book of Hebrews says, that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. What he suffered here is the perfect son of God being rebuked by Pharisees and hypocrites who didn't really have the right. Now, a rebuke means a, a scolding. It means to express disapproval. And the difference between criticism and rebuke is that a rebuke is personally directed and it aims at you as a person and it is usually given personally directly to you. Whereas a criticism can be made, I can criticize uh, you by telling somebody else, but that's not a rebuke. A rebuke has a personal aspect to it. I was walking down the hall the other Sunday morning when a young, I think he's five, a young boy in one of our families, I won't say the last name just for the sake of the parents, <laughs> but um, how old is your boy, Jonathan? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he looked up at me in the hallway he has the same birthday as mine, which is tomorrow. He'll be how old? Six. He'll be six. I got him by, how many years have I got him by? <laughs> Let's not talk about that. He looked up at me and he said, Dr. Kortz, I want to know one thing. Why do you talk so loud in church? <laughs> oh boy, I had to think fast on my feet with that one. 
And so I said, well, son, <laughs> I want to make sure the people up there in the balcony you sometimes go to sleep on me. I watch you up there in that top row. And sometimes I, I want to make sure that everybody hears. Everybody hears. <laughs> But I thought that was neat. Five-year-old boy walking up to me and saying, Preacher, why do you talk so loud? <laughs> so for the rest of this morning, I will bring you a lecture in Entering Jerusalem 101. <laughs> you know, it's an interesting thing. A lot of young preachers never do ever learn to project You know, it's interesting. He caused me to really think. I, I sat down and wrote a whole journal day on this subject. But, and I ask myself why. You see, a preacher is projecting his feeling or his emotion out to that back row. I've got to go, not just, it's not just a matter of sound. It's projecting how you feel, what you think back to the, the back row. Have you ever seen a, a, an inexperienced preacher walk up to the microphone and talk flat and not get anything past the middle of the of the auditorium. See, he hasn't yet learned to project himself emotionally or spiritually. I want you up in the balcony, up in the nosebleed section, to feel what I'm feeling and to hear what I'm thinking and to, to see what I'm seeing. When I draw a word picture, I want to express it to you up there so you... Now, you see what I'm doing right there? It's almost natural. Now, I hope that he understands why I'm doing what I'm doing. I want everybody to hear and everybody to know who Jesus is. Amen? All right. Now, let's see. What were we talking about here? So he gave me a mild rebuke for speaking too loud. And you know, I got to thinking, a child would automatically assume that if somebody is speaking loudly to him, he is probably rebuking him. And so he sees that in a negative sense. And uh, that uh, has to be moderated. So I'll, I'll work on that. I'll, I will work on that. But I want you to see in this passage what led to the rebuke. First, notice in verse 28, there are the claims of the city. To Jesus, Jerusalem was a burden. To Jesus, Jerusalem was a field. To Jesus, the city was the center of everything God had ever done. It was the joy of the people. It was the crown jewel of all of Palestine and all of Israel. And the city had become a representation of institutional religion and institutional rejection of God's plan. And so to Jesus, he had to go to Jerusalem. In fact, you see it again in verse 11. As they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. There is a break in every one of the synoptic gospels. There's a break. And you'll see it from, from, from a particular, John 13, for instance, in John. From that moment on, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to address the claims of the city on his heart. Secondly, they're the demands of prophecy. There are two demands of prophecy. The first is that of the cult, that the Messiah will come riding into Jerusalem in a certain manner, and Jesus had to fulfill that prophecy. And that when he came into the city to begin his final denouement, he is to be called blessed, 
Blessed is the king. He is to be called king who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there are two elements of prophecy that are being fulfilled in this narrative. But those elements of prophecy which point to Jesus then lead to the rebuke of the Pharisees. Don't let these people call you the Messiah. And then finally, I want you to see in verse 40, when Jesus said the stones cry out, there is the destiny of truth. Truth is going to come out. If you don't confess it, God will show it to you. If you don't acknowledge it, God will reveal it. Jesus said there's coming a time when, when everything will be brought to light and there will be nothing else hidden. Paul said that when the Lord comes, all the hidden things of darkness will be brought to the fore and brought to the surface. The destiny of truth is to be told. But let's zero in on the idea of the rebuke. Here is the rebuke again in verse 39. Hold your hand here and go back to Matthew 16. Jesus has recorded by Matthew another rebuke by the apostle Peter, who is a disciple at this point. And Peter, in verse 21 of Matthew 16, begins another rebuke of Jesus. Notice this. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. There again, notice the claims of the city. He must go to Jerusalem. And he's going to be killed and raised again the third day. When in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Same word, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And he rebuked Jesus for even speaking about death. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So Jesus was no stranger to rebuke. He had already been rebuked by Peter and had been rebuked and challenged at other times. Now, there are three elements to this idea of rebuke. And you children, you teenagers, when you're rebuked by your parents, watch what happens here. This is what happened to Jesus. The first thing in every rebuke, there is an assumption. The Pharisees made a correct assumption in this part that the disciples were acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah and the King. Sometimes rebukes are made on false assumption. Have any of you ever been falsely rebuked or you've been rebuked for something that was not true? It was based upon an assumption that was unfounded or unproven. I have been rebuked many times because people did not have the whole story. And so they wanted to rebuke me when I knew information that would counter what they thought. And there are times in a pastor's life when you cannot even mention what you really know because you cannot tell the whole truth. And you suffer the rebuke even though the assumption is false. For every one of you who've ever suffered a false assumption, I want you to know that Jesus understands what you experienced and went through because he had the same. Secondly, every rebuke deals not only with an assumption, but with a criticism. There is inherent in every rebuke the idea that you are wrong and it becomes very personal. The criticism becomes extremely personal. 
You may rebuke a child. And when you focus upon the individual and not the act, you can often do damage to a child, parents, when you are trying to correct the individual. The third thing about a, a rebuke is that it contains, almost all rebukes contain a warning. If you don't do this, then I'm going to do this. If you do this, then I won't do that or I'll do this. And here's the warning. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And implied in that is this warning about what the Pharisees would do to him. Well, Jesus knew they were going to kill him anyway. There are two questions that ought to be asked by every one of us when we're about to be rebuked. There are two questions, it seems to me, that we should look at. Question number one is, what can I learn from this? What can I learn from this rebuke? I think that's a justifiable question. Now, that's not my nature. If you rebuke me, guess what my nature is? What's my nature? I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to tell you exactly what you can do. You can stick it in your ear. I'm going to tell you exactly where to go. And I'm going to tell you you're not perfect yourself. Aren't all those things inherent in our defense against a rebuke? Anybody here get a rebuke this week? Anybody in the men's section get a rebuke from anybody this week? Did you? Anybody get a rebuke from your wife? Anybody get a rebuke from your boss? Well, they're not going to admit it if they did. I can see that right now. I'm going to go to this crowd. <laughs> now, take your Bibles and hold your hand here and go back over to Proverbs because there is a fascinating insight here in the book of Proverbs, chapter 27, to how to take rebuke. I memorized this one some years ago, but I want you to see it, and I want you to draw a box around it in your Bibles. There it is in Proverbs 27, 5. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Now, why would the writer of Proverbs make that statement? Why would you rather have an open rebuke than secret love? Because secret love, you can't do anything about it. For instance, suppose that uh, there's a girl at West Forsyth High School that's got a crush on Matthew Hind. And uh, she's, uh, she'd been watching him, and boy, she, she likes his haircut. And she'd been watching him kick the football out on the field. And she'd been watching him the way he teases the other girls or whatever he does to girls. And uh, he's been, she's been saying in her heart, I like him. And that's secret love. Uh, who's, you get any girls over there you're interested in, Matthew? No? If you did, you wouldn't tell, would you? Not here. Okay. I just thought I might, you know, this is a good form. This is a good way to get it out if you got any secret loves. Good way to pass around the word. But to give a hint. So she keeps that love secret, but he can never do anything about it. There's no way he can respond. I remember when I was a teenager, when I was in junior high school, I'll tell you, it would blow me out of the water when somebody would come to me and say, did you know that Ann Minwigan has a crush on you? And I said, no, she does. She kind of cute. I wish I'd have known sooner. I could have done something about that. Actually, that was the first girl that ever kissed me. It was Ann Minwigan. I remember, well, I, 
won't describe that anymore either. But anyway, I didn't know she had a crush on me. Now, what the writer is saying is that open rebuke is better than secret love because you can't do anything about a secret love, but you can do something about open rebuke. That's the principle. That's the idea. So it leads us to ask about every rebuke, what can I learn from this matter? What can I learn from the rebuke? So rather than directing my defense or my negative fleshly response to a rebuke back to the person who gave me the rebuke, the Lord says, turn that back on yourself and ask, is there any element of truth to this rebuke and what can I learn from this? Because open rebuke is better than secret love. Now, the second question I ought to ask when I'm facing rebuke is, who is giving the rebuke? <laughs> I want to know. I always want to know what's underneath. I always want to know what's the motive. I, I, I can't ever fully know motives, but I want to know what's underneath this person's action. Who is giving the rebuke? Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 5. It's very clear. It gives us an interesting insight to this in Ecclesiastes. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. There it is. The rebuke of the wise is always better than the best thing a fool can give you, he says. Now, that passage helps us to focus on the idea of the rebuker. Who is giving the rebuke? Because the messenger will give me a hint as to how I ought to receive the message. And in this case, it is the Pharisees. It is the Pharisees who have already made up their mind. They're going for Jesus. They're going to get him some way. Winston Churchill said one time in a speech, I do not at all resent criticism, even when for the sake of emphasis, if for a time it parts company with reality. <laughs> He said, I don't mind criticism, even if it's not in the wor real world, because I can always learn from it, and I can always find out something from it. Ask yourself two questions. What can I learn from this? Open rebuke is better than love concealed. And who is giving the rebuke? The rebuke of the wise is much better than the song of fools. Now, I want to give you a... Uh, governing principle here in Colossians chapter 4. And then I want us to look at the five laws which master rebuke for handling rebuke. But if you read carefully Colossians, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 4 verse 6. Paul gives us an interesting clue in this, this uh, book, these last two chapters. He's really dealing with our response and our getting along with each other, as in chapter 3, verse 13, he says we should be bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And if anyone has a complaint or a criticism or a rebuke for another, here's what we must do. And he kind of concludes that passage before he gives the benediction to the book. He concludes that passage in chapter 4, verse 6. And this is what he says. Let your speech always be with grace seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And he gives us in Colossians 4, 6, the practical way to handle a rebuke and the laws of rebuke that we're going to see in just a second. Now, there are two things. Your speech 
in answering somebody, should always be with grace. Cut them some slack. Give them a little room. Assume they do not have all the information. Understand they've made some kind of an assumption. Your parents get on you because you get in at 1130 and you're supposed to be in at 11. And they make an assumption that you don't have a good reason. And you say, wait, mom and dad, let me give you a good reason. Let me tell you what happened or whatever. So the first thing, when we answer a rebuke, it should always be seasoned with grace Always sprinkled with slack. And secondly, it should be seasoned with salt. Think carefully about what you say so you don't have to take it back. So Paul said, be careful and let your, let your speech always be seasoned with salt so you never have to add anything else to what you say when you answer a rebuke. That's what he means. Think carefully about what you're saying so you don't have to take any of it back or, or say, well, what I really meant to say was, well, what I should have said was, well, what I should have added to that was, no, no, Paul said, let your speech be seasoned with salt and seasoned with grace so that you don't have to add anything and you're always offering slack. Now, as I examine the life of Jesus, I want to make a, an application to our blessed Lord. It seems to me that there are five biblical laws for handling rebuke. Ways that we are going to face a crisis. I find these very helpful in John chapter 13. Turn with me and we'll stay there for the remainder of the time. Here, beginning in this chapter, Jesus has it announced that he is headed to the cross now. His basic earthly ministry is finished, except for his death and his last week's ministry. Now we're going to have chapter 14, the prayer passage. We're going to have the vine chapter. We're going to have the, the prayer for the Holy Spirit in chapter 16 of John, the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, and then the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 18, and then the account of the cross. So chapter 13 divides the book of John. Look at verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, where Christ was to die, when Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. See, at this stage he draws a line. I'm going to depart from this world to the Father. I'm going back to heaven. I'm ready to die. I'm headed to the cross. The Bible says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And in that passage, we see five biblical laws for handling rebuke. Here they are. Number one, we must make sure there's a focus on our purpose. I must make sure there's a focus on my purpose. How does this rebuke relate to what my life is all about? The Bible says Jesus knows now that he's going to depart from the world. He's headed to the cross. He's loved his own and he's loved them to the end. One reason Jesus could take so gracefully, 
so full of understanding the rebuke of the Pharisees in Luke's account is that he knew he was headed to the cross. He knew what his life was about. He had come into this world to die, and he is ready to die. And you can make all the rebuke you want, but I will not let it deter me from getting to my purpose. Now, make up your mind what your life is all about, Jesus is saying. We ought to know what we're about. Don't let a rebuke get you off on the perimeter. Don't let somebody's criticism get you off on the edge. Don't let somebody's criticism or complaint of you create in you such an emotional emperor, such an emotional spiritual tyrant that all you can think about is the criticism of that person and you forget what life is about. One of the ways that Jesus handled the rebuke was that he kept his eyes on his goal and his goal was to get to the cross. He must get to the cross to die. And in life, when we face rebuke, the devil uses rebuke to deter us from accomplishing God's will, to get us off course. Let me assess what it is I am about in this world. I have made up my mind that I'm going to heaven and I want to take everybody with me that I can. And simply stated, that has been my purpose in life for a long time. And I don't want somebody's rebuke or criticism of me to, to deter me from doing what I believe God sent me here to do. Amen? And if you understand that, you can then keep on focus. You can keep on the beam. You can head towards the cross even when the Pharisees would discourage you from going to the cross. Suppose Jesus had said, well, you guys aren't perfect. Suppose he'd said, well, boy, if they're that angry at me already the first day of this week, what's it going to be like the rest of the week? Maybe I better go back to Bethany and pray about this some more. Jesus went right onto the cross in, in the rebuke, and so must we. Secondly, in handling, handling rebuke and experiencing rebuke, we must maintain a sense of identity. Rebuke and criticism threatens us when we're insecure. And we're insecure when we do not know who we are. Now look carefully at verses 2 and 3. Supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, now watch this, knowing that the Father had given everything into his hands, knowing that he had come from God, and knowing that he was going to God. Now underline those three things in your, in your Bibles. There are three things Jesus knew. He knew that the Father had given him everything, into his hands. He knew that he had come from God and he knew he was going back to God. There are three ways Jesus kept his sense of identity. He said, I know exactly what the Father has placed in my hands. I know exactly that I belong to God and I'm his son. And I know exactly that I'm going back to God. There is no doubt. And with that deep sense of identity, who he was, he could stare rebuke in the eye and deal with truth and never waver from the focus of his purpose in life and from the sense of identity. I tell you, the longer I live, the more convinced I am that it is a deep sense of identity for the Christian that is grounded in our relationship with God. For me, I gained a lot of identity from belonging to a family. I came from a large family. I, I had a lot of identity from belonging to a family. 
My parents had it instilled in us from the very beginning. We were not just a family, but we were a Christian family. We were not just a Christian family. We were a family that, that were known by certain things. We went to church. We didn't shop on Sunday. <laughs> I mean, that was a part of my identity. We didn't go to restaurants <laughs> that served beer. Can you remember that? I mean, if you were to transport a believer from the 1940s or the 50s to today and try to find a place to take them out to eat, your choice is McDonald's. Well, I don't even know. <laughs> I read that article in the paper this week. That's all I'll say. Let's see. Your choice is not very broad, but I gained my sense of identity from that family. I gained my sense of identity from this church. I know I've read all these books written by philosophical preachers and philosophical seminary professors that a preacher must never let his identity get hooked up with a church. I don't know how to separate my identity from the Calvary family. Where I am, wherever I am, I am you. And wherever you are, you are me. You say, that's negative. I don't want everybody to know. I, I went to a restaurant the, uh, just Friday at, at noon. And the waitress goes through all of the motions. And at the end, when she gives me the bill, she says, I know who you are. <laughs> now, what choice have I got but to give her a big tip? <laughs> if I give her a 2% tip, she's going to say, boy, at Calvary, I'll tell you, you know that Dean Harrison, he goes to Calvary. He's a cheapskate like all those people at Calvary because the preacher's a cheapskate. The truth is, as believers of the larger body of Christ, as evangelical Christians who believe the Word of God, we have our identity with Christ. I do not shrink from that. I am proud to tell you, I, I am a Christian. I am a believer. I belong to God's people, to this family called Calvary Baptist Church. And I can stand in rebuke, and I can stand in criticism, and I can stand in the wind because I know who I am. Jesus knew he had come from God. He was going back to the Father, and he had a strong sense of who he was. And he didn't have to shrink back from anybody. Reinforce that into your children. Eddie, reinforce that in your boys. They're Branscombs. They're Christians. They belong to God. They belong to you. David, reinforce that with those boys of yours over there. They're rights. And rights can't be wrong. Amen? <laughs> and, uh, and they belong to Jesus. And they belong to God. And you gave them to the Lord. And they're coming out of that is a strong sense of identity that will help our young people to stand in a world that's desperately searching for self-esteem. We're taking, we're reading books on self-esteem. We're re listening to tapes. We're seeing uh, uh, TV videos on it. When it begins with a believer being centered around God and gaining his identity because he's attached to him. The third thing we need to face rebuke is a teachable humility. In verse 5, the Bible says he poured water, Jesus poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel from which he was girded. Jesus was not so great that he couldn't humble himself to wash their feet. That's the kind of character trait that stood him well when the Pharisees rebuked him in front of a large crowd. They didn't do it privately. 
They did it before a crowd when he was entering Jerusalem. He had a humility that wouldn't quit. It takes humility to learn. And some of us, we can't take a rebuke. We can't take any helpful rebuke, even the rebuke of a wise man, because we're not humble enough. We think we've got to defend ourselves. We think we've, we've got it down. A teachable humility. Fourth, another biblical law for handling rebuke is a desire to grow, a desire to become. And you see that evidenced in verse 6. He came to Simon Peter and Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? What I am doing you do not understand now, Jesus answered and said to him, but you will know after this. Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. Good old Peter. Leave it to Peter. <laughs> you know, I'd be a, that would make a great Christian TV series. Leave it to Peter. <laughs> Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. You will have nothing to do with me, no connection to me, no union with me, no involvement with me, no life with me, no future with me, no destiny with me. Wait a minute, Peter. Do you really want to say that? And then Peter responded, Lord, just like Peter, I just don't want you to wash my feet. Wash my head too. Do a job on my hair, my face, my ears, my whole body. <laughs> and there he revealed at least one thing about Peter that is insightful. And that is, this is a form of rebuke to Peter. You understand that. And that is that he wanted to grow. You will never grow unless you're able to take rebuke. You will never grow in Christ unless you can allow your wife to say to you, honey, I really think it's better to do it this way. You will never grow unless you allow your husband to say, dear, you can't afford to do that. You've got to do this and, and then you'll make progress. I think it is absolutely essential that we learn how to take criticism and rebuke for us to become what God wants us to become. And the fifth biblical law is found in verse 10. Jesus said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew, meaning not all of them, plural, not every one of them. So when he, and he's, it's a play on words. All of you, you're all clean, but you're not all clean, is what he's saying. If I've washed your feet, it symbolizes a cleansing of the whole, but not everyone. He knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. And then, of course, they had the supper. The fifth thing was an absolute pure conscience. To take rebuke, we need a pure conscience. Jesus is saying, I know what's going on inside your life, Simon. I have nothing to hide, but I know what's going on inside you. Do you know, there was a priest in the Philippines who was a well-loved priest in his parish. And he had committed a grievous sin while he was in seminary, and it bothered him all of his life. All during his ministry, he could never take criticism because he'd never dealt with that sin. It lay back there accusing him in his conscience. He had confessed it, but he had never accepted God's forgiveness. And he had a lady in his parish who claimed that she had dreams. And when she had dreams, God spoke to her and Christ came and talked with her. 
And so the priest thought, well, I'll just put her to the test. He said, now, the next time that Jesus comes to talk with you, I want you to ask him if he will tell you what was your priest's grievous sin when he was in seminary. Several days later, he saw the lady again and he said, did you have a dream? She said, yes. Did Jesus come and talk? She said, yes. Did you ask him what was the grievous sin that your priest had committed? She said, yes. He said, what did Jesus say? She said, Jesus said, I don't remember. I don't remember. And suddenly the power of the blood was driven home to him. He knew he had been totally cleansed. And he had allowed the false accusation of his conscience to hinder him all these years. His sin was buried in the deepest sea. Jesus said, truth is coming out. If I do not let them say the truth, the rocks will cry out, but truth is coming out. I'm telling you folks, if you don't understand something, sit back and wait. God will bring truth. Either in this life, at the great white throne judgment, the truth will come out. At the second coming of Jesus, the truth will come out. Jesus said it cannot help. It is the destiny of truth to be revealed. And until Jesus comes, and I understand I'm going to learn everything I can from every rebuke I can. I don't fully understand you, but when Jesus comes, I will. You don't fully understand me, but when Jesus comes, you will. I don't fully understand what's going on in this world, but when Jesus comes, I will. I don't fully understand why God takes a young man who two weeks ago Tuesday stood right here and spoke to me, 42 years of age, Randy Kilby, the president of Fruitland Baptist Bible Institute. And five days later, he's preaching in Lenore and he's stricken with a heart, stuck, struck, stricken with a heart attack and dies at age 42. I don't understand that. I don't understand. But someday I'll understand. When John Kennedy was president, he was fond of telling about Colonel Davenport, the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives. In 1789, they were in session. And the sky was dark and a storm was threatening and some of the, the members of the Connecticut House of Representatives were thinking, the Lord's coming. It was such a grave time in America. And the rumor passed around the house room. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The end is coming. And somebody rushed a note up to Colonel Davenport. Do you see how dark the clouds are? Things are so bad. The Lord's coming. And Colonel Davenport, the Speaker of the House, said something like this. He said, whether the Lord is coming or not, if he comes or if he doesn't come, then we shouldn't adjourn. There's no reason to adjourn. If he does come, then I want to be found at my place of duty. Therefore, he said, bring the candles, give us light, and let us go on till Jesus comes. <laughs> that was a fascinating story coming from President John F. Kennedy. But the truth is, when our Lord comes, that's what Jesus is pointing to. Jerusalem, you'll know the truth, and so will we.